I'm Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief of USA Today, and this is Capital Download. We are at the University of Louisville with Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader. Thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here. You have a new book out, a memoir. It's called The Long Game, and we're sitting appropriately enough in the archives at the McConnell Center here at the university. In the bookcase, we have your Cub Scout manual. <laughs> we have the I Like Ike button that you wore in the fifth grade. So lots of memories here. Yeah. Well, I was sort of a pack rat, um, never really knew why I was keeping all the stuff I kept, but it turned out uh, I'm an archivist delight because I uh, almost threw away nothing, ever. <laughs> You've been uh, a pretty private figure mm -hmm. for uh, a politician. You don't usually cooperate with profiles. In the very first sentence in this book, you say that in profiles you usually play the villain. But in this memoir, you do talk about your childhood and your parents and your wife and your colleagues. Why did you want to write it? Well, I think when I became majority leader, um, which was not exactly something that happened quickly, <laughs> it occurred to me that maybe it would be a good time to uh, talk about my life in politics and my life in general. And um, that's what led to where we are. The long game, the reason I chose the title The Long Game is that it was a long period. You know, I'm, not an overnight sensation. I've been, you know, working on my career uh, for a long time. I actually started <clears throat> with my first memory in life um, and worked my way forward. And my first memory in life was my last visit to Warm Springs after uh, a two-year struggle that I don't remember myself because I was between ages two and four recovering from the polio that afflicted my left quadricep. And that was the last visit to Warm Springs, and the nurses told my mother uh, I was going to be okay. They thought I could walk without a limp and without a brace. And we stopped in a shoe store on the way home and bought a pair of low-top saddle Oxford shoes, which was sort of a symbol of uh, that I was going to be a normal little boy. And, would, and I've had, thanks to her tenacity, I mean, can you imagine keeping a two-year-old and a three-year-old off their feet? They didn't want me to, to try to walk prematurely because they were afraid it would inhibit the ability to get whatever muscle recovery you could get in the quadricep through the exercise process. So she literally had to watch me like a hawk. She did it for two years, like a drill sergeant. And uh, that tenacity that she brought to that episode, I always thought, was, even though I was awfully young, was an early lesson in how if you just keep working at something and not defeated by the inevitable speed bumps that we all hit in life, that you could probably get where you're headed. You know, tenacity and patience are probably two of the words people would use about you to this day. I think that would be an accurate description, and the Senate rewards that sort of thing, because the Senate is not a place where uh, instant gratification, shall I say, is very likely. You talk about the long game as being a story of your life, mm -hmm. but it is also something you write about as being part of the political process, that you need to take mm -hmm. a long view, that you need to be willing to take incremental steps. Yeah. Do you think we've kind of lost that ability politically to take the long view? I don't think the, the Senate has. I think the public is very impatient, and I understand why. <clears throat> the average American is two or $3,000 
actually three or four thousand dollars, worse off today than they were when President Obama came to office. They're not happy. You see that on the political left with the Sanders um, campaign, the people who think the president hadn't been, amazingly enough to me, liberal enough, and you see it on the right as well. But I think what all of those people are expressing is that their lives are not as well off as they were a few years ago, and some real doubts about whether their children are going to be living better than they, which of course has been the promise of every generation of Americans going back to the beginning. You know, in 1945, uh, after victory in Europe, he was going to be deployed to yeah. Japan, yeah. to the Pacific, um, until President Truman ordered the atomic bomb yeah. dropped on Hiroshima. We've got President Obama just this month becoming the first U.S. president to go there. Yeah. There's some people think that is an, at least implicitly an apology. Do you think that Well, it looked be a little bit like an apology, and believe me, there's nothing to apologize for. We had seen how the Japanese were fighting to the last man on every one of the islands going across the Pacific, fighting to the death. It was estimated that it would take a million American casualties to take Japan. So I can tell you, Susan, the decision to drop the bomb was really popular in our house and all across America because a whole lot of Americans would have come back in body bags had we had to do a regular kind of land invasion of, uh, of Japan. And to this day you feel that way? Absolutely. Do you think it would have been better if President Obama hadn't gone there? I wouldn't have done it. You have some, in your, in your book, The Long Game, you have some really scathing things to say about President Obama. Here's one quote. Almost without exception, President Obama begins serious policy discussions by explaining why everyone else is wrong after he assigns straw men to your views, he enthusiastically attempts to knock them down with a theatrically earnest relitigation of what you've missed about his brilliance. Pretty tough. Yeah, but you know, not unique. I'm sure you've talked to some Democrats who said similar <laughs> things. Look, the president's a very smart guy. Um, I, I know that before we have a meeting. And um, I know he knows what he's talking about, and I know he knows what he thinks. What I would prefer not to listen to is for him to characterize my views to me in his presence, because I know what I think. One of the reasons I enjoyed working with the vice president, and he and I have been together on several very big occasions where we've negotiated bipartisan deals, is he doesn't waste any time trying to convince me of things he knows I won't do. I don't waste any time trying to convince him of things I know he won't do. We just get down to the business of trying to get an outcome. Now, critics would say that Republicans in general, and you in particular, have been determined to obstruct mm -hmm. President Obama at, at every term from the Affordable Care Act to the current Supreme Court confirmation debate, that you've made it impossible for him. True? Of course not. The three biggest bipartisan agreements of the Obama years I have negotiated with the Vice President the December 2010 two-year extension of the Bush tax cuts, the August 2011 Budget Control Act, and the, uh, January, the December 31st uh, fiscal cliff deal, all of which were to prevent significant tax increases or to get the debt ceiling raised. So I've been open to negotiation when it was appropriate 
and when we had to get an outcome. What I'm not open to was his effort uh, to turn us into a Western European country, and that's what his agenda the first two years was all about. Talk, let's talk about Harry Reid, because you have some tough things to say about him as well. You say he's a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde personality. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as the cameras turn on, he becomes bombastic and unreasonable, spouting things that are nasty and tr unt often untrue. None of that is as tough as what Harry says about <laughs> me periodically, including just last week on the floor in which he uh, attributed our presidential nominees' uh, positions on a variety of different things to me. What I'm doing, Harry personally is a nice guy, but when the Clegg lights go on, he turns into kind of a bombastic guy. And I don't think that's the best tone for either the leader of the majority or the minority in the Senate to set. Um, he does it routinely when I point it out, like I did in the book, apparently it's noteworthy, but he does it routinely. But uh, he shouldn't be surprised. I mean, he had, the day before he, or a few days before he took offense at what was in my book, he was trashing me and attributing all of my, all of Trump's positions to me, which is of course not true. One, one more figure. This is somebody who does not appear in your book, to my surprise. And I read your book and I thought, I must have missed this. I went to the index, he's not there. Ted Cruz. Yeah. His name does not appear in your book. He's been it, your he's nemesis. Not, he, it's not significant to my story. Is he not, not significant to your story? He called you a liar. It's, it's not a significant part of my story, so that's why he's not in there. Is he not a significant part of the Senate? Well, I would say that he has maybe one follower on a good day. Uh, he, he ran a great race for president. I congratulate him on that. But no, he's not a factor in the Senate. You say some people say your nominee is too controversial. Some people say that. Some people say that. Yeah, but, but by the way, the Democratic nominee is pretty controversial too. <laughs> Is, I mean, the, the negatives on both these candidates at the moment are stunningly high. The negatives for both of them are, are very high. The negatives for Donald Trump are hi even higher than the ones for Hillary Clinton. Is he going to... Well, she's getting close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see whose negatives are the highest when it's, when it's all over. Do you think he's a drag on Senate Republican I candidates? No. Do you think he's, a, is he an asset anywhere? For he, a he, he may well be in parts of the state, in, uh, in parts what, of the country. Which, which states would he be an asset for a Senate We'll see. Candidate? It's a long wait on November. What are you telling your candidates they should do when it comes to the top of the ticket? Well, I'm telling them the same thing I was telling them before we knew who was going to be at the top of the ticket. I think it's important in a Senate race in particular <clears throat> to have individual accomplishments for your states. Is there any percentage for a Senate candidate to try to disassociate themselves from the top of the ticket, directly say, I'm not going to vote for the top of the ticket, to try to really distinguish themselves? No, I think that'd be a mistake, because obviously you'd like for the people who are voting for your candidate for president to vote for you. <clears throat> but I just think you support the nominee, and then if there are places where you differ, point that out, and paint your own picture of your own accomplishments. Are there places where you differ from Donald Trump? Sure. I, I said I didn't think uh, we should be banning Muslims coming into the United States. Uh, I said the other day it's uh, fair, been, become fairly common for candidates for president to release their tax returns. Um, I don't certainly agree with him on a number of things he said. So you've worked for, you've worked with uh, five presidents. You've been in a, a senator during the terms of, of five different presidents, and for several of them you've been in a leadership position. Can you envision Donald Trump as president, would he be somebody you think 
as the leader of Senate Republicans you could do business with if you were the president? Sure. A, a Republican president is going to operate within a broad Republican framework. They'll have to deal with uh, Speaker Ryan and myself and others and the views that we hold. Our nominee brags about, I think correctly, being somebody who's transactional, somebody who, as he put it, makes deals. Well, that's, you know, that's what you have to do in order to function legislatively. So I'm not worried about it at all. I think you'd be fine. I ask you if you could envision Donald Trump as president and you're dealing with him as the Republican Senate leader. So Hillary Clinton, also someone you know, mm -hmm. uh, you dealt with her when she was in the U.S. Senate. Can you envision dealing with her if she turned out to be the president? Of course. Yeah, we'll have to. Under the Constitution, uh, we deal with whoever's in the White House. And um, I hope she's not the president because I think she will be four more years just like the last eight. And that Americans who are looking for something different are not likely to get it from Hillary Clinton. But you know, certainly I, I know her from her time in the Senate. While she was Secretary of State, she came here to the McConnell Center, spoke to the students at my request. Um, I know her and I like her, and if she's elected, of course, we'll be dealing with her. Let me ask you a last couple questions about the convention. What's, what is your role going to be at the Republican convention in Cleveland? I have sort of historically some kind of role, I think it's like temporary chairman or something. <clears throat> the speaker plays a bigger role in presiding over more of the convention. But it looks like this convention is not going to be all that different from others. We're going to know going in who the nominee is going to be. Um, it'll be interesting to see if the nominee decides to make the convention more entertaining, <laughs> given his uh, entertainment background. But um, the outcome won't be a suspense, and I think the platform won't change either. Do you think that's a good idea to make the convention a little more entertaining? Uh, I want to win the election, and uh, I have to say, Donald Trump's done a good job so far of winning elections, and I hope he can win one more. Mitch McConnell, thank you so much for joining us on Capital Thank Demo. you, Susan.